0: The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, today is the final Sunday of the Ten Commandments, but it's also the final Sunday that we're studying the book of Exodus, which I believe we started back in January. Exodus is the story of God stopping at nothing to set his people free and to bring them to himself. And as we have learned, God has set his people free from bondage and slavery in Egypt and the Ten Commandments he has given to them that they might live free. If you would please open up to Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 17. It's page 61 in the Red Bible, page 98 in the Children's Bibles. Uh, These laws that we have looked at, just as a reminder to you and to my own heart, these laws are not given by God to be obstacles of our happiness by a joy suppressing God, but they are given as a guide to our happiness and our holiness and our freedom as a joy exalting God. Next week, uh, we're going to be transitioning into 1 Peter, which is about suffering and salvation. And I am so very excited about it because I know in my own studies, my joy in my own salvation has continued to grow. And even my view of my suffering in my life has been transformed by this book. And so I'm so excited to go through that with you. And as you notice, many of our community groups are following the sermon series as well, but it is a rich and deep book. And I am so very, very excited uh, to dig deep in it with you uh, this semester. Since our last uh, week of Ten Commandments, um, since this is our last week of the Ten Commandments, I want to just read through them one last time to refresh our minds and our hearts of what we have been studying. And as we read through all of the commandments, I'd encourage you to think about ways that you have better understood these commandments and how God, through his Holy Spirit, has encouraged your heart to love these commandments. And so let's read together. We'll start in Exodus 20 and read through verse 17. First, the preface to the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now the first four commandments, the vertical relationship with God commandments. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. to keep it holy. Six days you should labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, the commandments focus on our horizontal relationships in this new covenant community. Verse 12 Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then today's focus, the 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for these commandments that you have given to us as a gift of your grace, as a loving Heavenly Father would tell His children, this is how you live free. This is how you live a joy-saturated life. You have given this to us for that purpose, that we might live for you, that we might be holy as you are holy, and that we might enjoy you as we were created to do. God, pray that you would impress these commandments upon our heart, that they would not be a burden to us, but that they would be a joy that we would delight to know and delight to practice in. Be with us this day. Open our hearts. Help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you, that we might apply the truth of your word and the goodness of your gospel to the depth of our being. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In September of 1999, there was an article in Christianity Today written by a gentleman named Mark Buchanan. And it's entitled, Trapped in the Cult of Next Things. And I want to read just an excerpt of it for you. It goes like this. I belong to the cult of the next thing. It's dangerously easy to get enlisted. It happens by default. Not by choosing the cult, but by failing to resist it. The cult of the next thing is consumerism cast in religious terms. It has its own litany of sacred words. More. You deserve it. New. Faster. Cleaner. Brighter. It has its own deep-rooted liturgy. Charge it. Instant credit. No down payment. Deferred payment. No interest for three months. It has its own preachers. Evangelists. Prophets and apostles, admin, pitchmen, and celebrity sponsors. It has, of course, its own shrines, chapels, temples, meccas, malls, superstores, club warehouses. It even has its own sacraments, credit, and debit cards. It has its own ecstatic experience, the spending spree. The cult of the next thing's central message proclaims, crave and spend for the kingdom of stuff is here. You know, it is so hard to see sin in our own lives and yet so easy to see it in the lives of others, isn't it? I'm guessing even as I read that, you probably thought about somebody else, didn't you? And yet, if all of us were honest, we are consumed by the cult of the next thing. We always want that one more thing that will make our life a little bit easier, a little bit happier, a little bit more peaceful. I didn't look at any statistics on this, but I don't think it's hard to imagine that we might be in the most coveting culture in the history of the world. I mean, think about it. How much do shoe brands spend on sponsors in order to make you covet their product? Did you know that Michael Jordan, who has been retired for how long now? A decade, maybe? Last year, he made $100 million off of endorsements. Some of you probably heard earlier this week, Aaron Rodgers made this huge deal with Adidas. Adidas to promote their product. And their goal is to make us covet their product, to want their product. And I know I have been victim to it. I remember in junior high, and all of you probably have a story like this, I needed to have Air Jordans. It was not a want, it was a need, because if I did not have them, my social life would die, so I thought, right? Because we get bought in to this consumerism and that we covet the next thing. Sometimes we even covet the previous thing. I know when I was in elementary school, I wanted to be in junior high. When I was in junior high, I wanted to be in senior high. When I was in senior high, I wanted to be in college. When I was in college, I wanted to be in the real world. And then when I got in the real world, I wanted to go back to high school, right? (laughs) Sometimes we want the next thing. Sometimes we want the previous thing. Usually we just want something that we don't presently have. And so our hearts are prone to covet. Now, what does it mean to covet? Well, covet means to want or to crave something. It's a yearning or longing for something. To covet is to set your heart upon something. This is the definition I want to give to you. Covet is to fix your desire upon. Now, coveting is not always a bad thing, and we will explain that more as we go along. But corrupt coveting is an over-desire for a good thing. You know, when we first chose to do this series on the Ten Commandments, the commandment I was most excited to preach on was this Tenth Commandment. And the reason why I was so excited to preach on the 10th commandment is because this 10th commandment is strategically placed by God in the Big Ten to undermine any superficial reading of the first nine commandments. This 10th commandment cannot be taken superficially because coveting cannot be reduced to an outward action or a checkbox. In fact, in this commandment, which targets the heart. The apostle Paul was convinced of his sin and his need for a savior. Romans seven tells us about it. He says, what then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. Yet if I had not been, if, if I had not been for, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin for, I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet.' He could have picked any of the nine commandments. But he picked the last one because it's the only one that could not be taken externally, superficially. And he goes on to say, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And then he goes on to talk about how the law is not bad, but we are bad. The law is good. It shows us our sin. But what he focuses on is this last commandment, the commandment of coveting. You see, Paul was a very religious man before his conversion. And like many religious people then and many religious people today, they look at the law from an external and superficial perspective. Have you murdered anyone? No, I haven't murdered anyone. Have you committed adultery? I haven't committed adultery. Have you stolen? Well, not really. And we take these externally and superficially so we can check the box and say, I'm good with God now. And yet what this 10th commandment does, which I love, is that it makes you review the first nine commandments and say, have I done this in my heart? For example, God says you shall not murder. But if we murder, then we are coveting vengeance, which belongs to the Lord. He says you shall not commit adultery. If we commit adultery, it starts with coveting of someone else's spouse or someone who's not our spouse. If we steal, it starts with us coveting someone else's property. If we bear false testimony, it begins with us coveting our reputation or coveting the control of a situation. You see what this 10th commandment does is you can't just check the box. You have to look deeper. You have to look at the sin beneath the sin and review your own heart as you look through these 10 commandments. And that's why I'm so excited about this commandment. We have emphasized how it goes deeper, but today God is showing us in this 10th commandment how important it is. And so today as we look at coveting, there are really two things I want to look at. Corrupt coveting, which is what we normally think of when we say coveting, but also correct coveting. When is coveting a good thing? So first, let's start with corrupt coveting. Where in your heart do you ever say, if only, if only I had this, or if only I had that, or if only this situation was different, then everything would be happy. Then I would be content. Then I would be at peace. As we look at this 10th commandment, it doesn't give an exhaustive list of places our hearts look and long for, but it breaks it down into three major categories that I want to look, look to here. The first category is that we covet things. It starts out by saying, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, this term house means household, and so it's more than just the physical structure that they live in with bedrooms and things of that sort. It includes that, but it's far more than that. It would include their property, what they own, all their possessions, things of that sort. And so maybe we would say in our hearts, if we were honest, we wouldn't say this out loud, but if we were honest, we would say, if only I had his house, if, if I didn't have to live in this dump, if things weren't so tight, so small or so broken, if only I could have their house, whew, life would be better. Or maybe if only I had a snowblower so I don't have to shovel this huge driveway. Or a riding lawnmower so I don't have to cut this huge yard. Life would be so much better. Or only if I had their bank account, I'd be so much more generous. We covet things. We also covet relationships. He says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. This gets very personal. But have you ever thought in your heart, if only I had her as my wife? She is so much prettier. She is so much more fun. She's so much less dramatic. This goes the other way as well. Have you ever thought, if only I had him as my husband. He seemed so much more mature, so much cooler, so much more loving, so much more understanding. Branch it out even farther than that to other relationships. If only my kids were like their kids, well-behaved, boy, that would make life better. Or what if I had grandparents like they have grandparents to come watch my kids so I can get a break? We covet so easily. The Lord says we shall not covet or desire or covet other people's things or relationships or even their status or power. Verse 17 continues. It says you shall not covet your neighbor's male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. When it's talking about these things, these are things that not everybody has. Not everybody had servants. Some people had to be the servants. Now, everybody had all these oxes and donkeys and things of that sort. This is a person of great status and great position and great power. And you notice it's something that we are so tempted to covet. Maybe we don't covet servants because we don't have that in today's society, but maybe we say, if only I had a cleaning lady like that person did, then life would be better. If only I had a car or a tractor like that person then my life would be satisfied. We covet status. Finally, you see God puts in here this kind of catch-all. If you covet anything, that's not yours. Just in case the first few didn't convict you. Verse 17, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. You know, this, comm- this final part of the commandment makes this command much more inclusive of everything that, listen closely, of everything that God has ordained to give to somebody else and has ordained not to give to you. This includes everything that God in his great wisdom and love and mercy has decided to give to somebody else and decided not to give to you. This goes way beyond stuff. This could be a promotion at work. This could be the person who has the ability to, to not study and get straight A's. I've always said, I hate those people. This could be somebody who has the athletic prowess that you don't have. Whatever it is, we must not covet whatever God has given to other people and has chosen to not to give to us. I don't know if you've ever heard the joke. If you do, I'd like for you to say the answer. What do you call cheese that is not yours? Nacho cheese, right? Nacho cheese. Do you know what you call a wife or husband that's not yours? Nacho spouse. What do you call singing voice that's not yours? Nacho talent. That's me. What do you call a house that's not yours? Nacho residence. The list could go on and on and on. Here's the point. It's okay to want good things. It's okay to say, boy, it'd be, it'd be nice to have a little bigger house. It'd be nice to have a more dependable car. But what God is making very explicit is that you shouldn't want what somebody else has. And you should be content with what God has given you. Now, personally, I don't often say, I want what they have. I would never say it out loud that I know it's wrong, so I wouldn't say it. But there's a litmus test for me on how I know if I'm coveting what somebody else has. And this is the litmus test for me. When somebody else gets, it could be a new, a new car, for example, and they have this brand new, shiny, wonderful car. Can I, in the depth of my heart, celebrate with them in that? Do I say, thank God that he has given this to you. I'm so thankful and I'm so glad that you get to enjoy this great blessing. Or do I look at that car and say, I hate that they have this car. I should have this car. I work hard, but I'm driving around this piece of junk. I'll give you, I'll be honest with you. I, I don't struggle with cars so much except gas mileage. My wife will tell you, I'm always like, I want better gas mileage. But here's where I struggle with coveting. I covet people that have weekends. People who have Saturday and Sunday off. People that can just go away to the lake house for the weekend. and just, Go and be free and rejuvenate and recoil and relax. You know, it's so ironic because if you know where my office is, I sit right outside a manufacturing uh, space. And and those people who do the welding and the drilling and all that stuff, they work four days a week. So they get three-day weekends, right? It starts Thursday night, goes through Sunday night, and they get to relax and enjoy. And I look at them, and I don't celebrate it. That should be me. Why don't I have that time off? You know, most people think pastors just work one day a week. The truth is we just get one day a week off. And Sunday afternoon is usually pretty relaxing as well. But it's a busy job. Now, I don't want to say this to, to gain sympathy. That's not my point. My point is that I'm coveting what God has given to someone else and not thankful for what God has given to me. Because you know what? There are certain privileges of being a pastor that other people don't get. For example, I'm home every night with my family to eat dinner and to hang out with them. Many people have to travel a lot. If, if my kids have an event, I can rearrange my schedule and be there. Some of you don't have that option. And so every job has its pluses and minuses, right? Clearly. But what we do is we covet what we don't have instead of being being thankful for what we do have. And it we become bitter and angry. And so we're not to covet what other people have. Now, this command goes much deeper than we think. It is much more offensive to God than we might first assume. This is something that I didn't um, realize before about the Ten Commandments, and still I started to study them. And that is that this command, thou shalt not covet, has a special link with the first commandment which is you shall have no other gods before me. If you have other gods before God, it's called idolatry. And there's a special link between this first commandment and the 10th commandment that serve as bookends to the 10 commandments. And what we learn, and I'll show you in a minute, is that when we covet, we commit idolatry. And when we commit idolatry, we covet. This is said very clearly in the New Testament by the apostle Paul. Ephesians 5.5, 5, you can see it behind me on the screen. I didn't add anything to this. This is just what it says. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Colossians 3.5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, why is this? Why is covetousness equal to idolatry? Why does God tie the two together? Well, it's because when we covet something, we're making a good thing, an ultimate thing. That thing that we covet covet becomes the thing that we long for, that we fixate on. It becomes the, the, the center point of our passions and our desires. And they take the place of God himself. It is a good desire to want something. But when you covet, it becomes an over-desire, an ultimate desire, a controlling desire, an enslaving desire. When we corruptly covet, it is idolatry because we are looking to places other than God to be our Savior and to satisfy the longings of our souls. Now, when we covet, as I mentioned earlier, we usually think about corrupt coveting, right? But not all coveting is corrupt. I mean, notice in this commandment, it doesn't simply say, do not covet, right? Like it says, do not commit adultery. It doesn't simply say, do not covet. It says, do not covet X, Y, and Z, which belong to your neighbor and not to you. If all coveting was wrong, the command wouldn't need to go past the command, do not covet but there is coveting in scripture which is good places where coveting is commended there is correct coveting and it's important for us to know this and for us to see what how we should covet it because the remedy for corrupt coveting is correct coveting the remedy for correct co- co- sorry corrupt it's hard to say it the remedy for corrupt coveting is not to stop coveting As a matter of fact, you can't stop coveting. God made you to covet. It's not to covet, to stop coveting. It's to start coveting the right things. And so I want to look and see in Scripture what God calls us to covet. What he calls us, what he commends us to covet. He's given us a heart to covet something. What are those things that we should most covet? The first is this, that we shall covet God's law. Psalm 19 We've gone back to this several times during the course of this series, but let me read to you again. It says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Is that how you think of the law? It revives our soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And then he says, more to be desired. The word used there for desired is the exact same word used for the word covet in the 10th commandment. More to be coveted are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. When we started this series on the Ten Commandments, I told you I had two goals for this series, both for you and for me. One would be that we would better understand the law. But the second is that we would better cherish the law, that we would delight in the law, that we would rejoice in God's law. That we would love it as a gift from God to restrain a wicked world. Love it as a gift from God to instruct us on how we might live free. How we might live human. How we might live in light of his love. Love it as a gift from God as it reveals our self-destructive sin. And leads us in paths of life. Paths of righteousness and paths that lead to Jesus. Thou shalt covet God's law. Secondly, you shall covet your spouse. Songs of Solomon, chapter 2. The wife says of her husband, As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men, with great delight. Again, the word delight is the word covet. With great covetousness, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. You shall not covet your neighbor's spouse, but you shall covet your spouse. This means it's a decision. You know, so many times we think, I can't control where my heart goes. Through the Holy Spirit, you have a decision to covet your spouse, to cherish your spouse, to delight in your spouse, to set your affections upon your spouse and not upon another. You are to long for them, to cherish them, to delight in them, and to rejoice in them. Thirdly and finally, you shall covet the gospel. I need to take a little bit of a tangent here. How many of you have heard of the Septuagint or know what it is? Okay, a handful. You're better than me. I didn't know it till I was in seminary. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, okay? And the New Testament was written in Koine Greek. And so what we, around 300 BC, there was some, a document created, and it was called the Septuagint. And what the Septuagint is, the Septuagint is a Koine Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Did you get that? It's a Koine Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the reason why it's so helpful for us sometimes is because we can see what Greek word they use in the Old Testament and then see how it applies to the New Testament. So for example, this one right here. How does the the Septuagint translate the word covet? Well, it translates it with the Greek word called epithuomen. Well, I can't even say it. But what we do is we can take that word and see how it's used in the New Testament and see how the New Testament authors and how God understands coveting in the New Testament. And one of the things that we see as we bring that into the New Testament is we see that God calls us, commends us to covet the gospel. In Matthew 13, 17, Jesus says, for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people coveted or longed to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. They coveted to know about the Messiah that was to come. It goes on in 1 Peter 1, and you can read it on the screen. It says, this concerning this salvation your salvation. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what persons or time grace that was to be yours. searched, I'm sorry. Person or time. The spirit of Christ in them was indicating. When he predicted the suffering of Christ. And the subsequent glories. Verse 12. It was revealed to them. That they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, which is the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then here's the part that blows my mind. Things into which angels covet to look or long to look. This is why I'm so excited to dig into 1 Peter. Because it tells us how great our salvation is. It reminds us of how great our salvation is. Do you know how great your salvation is? How great the gospel is? It is so great that the Old Testament prophets searched diligently to understand it and to discover it, that they might know the glories of the gospel. It's so beautiful and wonderful that angels in heaven long to study it and understand it. They covet to know your salvation. You see, angels like us can intellectually understand the gospel. It's not that hard intellectually to understand. A child could understand it. But conceptually, the gospel is unbelievable. It is so great, so deep, so amazing that we can dwell on it that we can set our hearts and our affections upon it for all eternity and never be disappointed. The gospel is unbelievable. How can it be? How can it be that a holy, righteous, glorious God, awesome in power, awesome in might, not only puts up with sinful, covetous, idolatrous people, like you and me, but as Daniel 10 tells us, that God covets his people. The God who created the universe and sustains it every second of every day. The God of whom angels cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy. That God, that amazing and perfect God of the entire universe, covets you. Unbelievable. No wonder angels long to look. How could it possibly be? But it is. God has set his affection upon you. God yearned for you. God has fixed his desire and heart upon you. And it would be completely unbelievable. Except the cross tells us that it's true. The cross tells us that a holy, righteous God delights in you, that he has sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on your behalf and die in my behalf because he covets us, he yearns for us, he longs for us, and he has come to reclaim us. This is the good news of the gospel, which prophets long to look and which angels perpetually study, and we should too. C.S. Lewis, in talking about desires, which is part of the definition of coveting, says this. He goes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum." because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Your problem is not that you covet. Your problem and my problem is what we covet. And our desires are not too big. Our desires are too small. The solution to corrupt coveting isn't to covet less, but it's to covet more, to covet the graver, greater things that God has given to us. Thou shall covet the gospel in thy salvation. Thou shall covet the God who covets you. Let me end with this story. Years ago, Russell Conwell told of an ancient Persian named Ali Hafid, who owned a very large farm and had orchards and grain fields and gardens and was a wealthy and very honestly content man. One day, a man from the east came and told this farmer about diamonds and diamond mines and how much could be made if he owned a diamond mine. And so Ali Hafid went to bed that night, a covetous man, a discontent man, And he went on to sell all of his possessions and to go looking to purchase a diamond mine. He craved the mine of diamonds and it overtook him. He traveled the world over, finally becoming so poor, so broken, and so defeated that he took his own life. One day, the man who purchased Ali Hafid's farm led his camel into the garden to drink. And as his camel put its nose into the brook, the man saw a flash of light from the sand of the stream. He pulled out a stone that reflected all the hues of the rainbow. The man had discovered the diamond mine of Golconda, one of the most significant and productive mines in human history. Had Ali Hafid remained at his home, and dug in his own garden, instead of being discontent and covetousness, he would have had riches untold. Here's the point. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, if you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, if you are the beloved and coveted child of God, you shall not covet the small treasures that you don't have, but you shall covet the great treasure that you do have. For in Christ, all the riches of heaven are yours. Covet and dig into God's word. He has given it to you as a gift. Covet and dig into God's people, which he has given to you by his grace. Covet and dig into the gospel because it is greater than any treasure this world has to offer. As we end This series on Exodus and this series on Ten Commandments, I realize that many words are spoken. Many times I go on and on and on, and maybe you're thinking that today. That's okay. There's one thing that I want you to remember. If you remember nothing else, remember this one thing covet the Lord because the Lord covets you. Let's pray. Lord, what a great gospel, one that we so easily grow disinterested in. Forgive us, God, for our apathetic, distant hearts. Remind us of the joy of our salvation. Let us delight not in the treasures of this world, but in the treasures of heaven. Let us covet the greater things, the heavenly things, the more glorious things. Let us covet you, God, and may it drive out all wicked covetousness of our hearts. Help us to this end, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.